0: Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Tracy Chow. I've known Tracy since she was a student at Stanford in 2009. Since then, she played important roles as one of the first engineers both Quora and Pinterest, and has also been quite vocal on the subject of women in technology. In this episode of Stanford Innovation Lab, Tracy shares her insights on diversity in the workplace. She discusses her experiences as a woman in software engineering roles, how data can inform the conversation on diversity, as well as her work on a new initiative called Project Include. I'm sure that you'll agree that Tracy's work is both fascinating and important. So Tracy, it's so wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So maybe you could share with everyone else. I've been following your exploits for the last few years. Maybe you could share with the audience uh, what you've been up to since you graduated from Stanford.
1: Sure. So I graduated from Stanford with degrees in electrical engineering and computer science, so kind of the standard tech story. Um, After I graduated, I went to work at a very small startup called Quora. It was four people at the time that I was talking to them, and I was excited about that opportunity, partly because I had just done the Mayfield Fellows Program at Stanford and had this intensive entrepreneurial workshop. Um, So I went to Quora as number five. I was there for a year and a half um, as software engineer. What was pretty cool about being at Quora, which was this platform for questions and answers, in the early days when we were trying to build that platform, was that all of us, alongside our normal jobs, would also be trying to generate content. So people would write questions and then all of us would kind of go try to answer them to make sure that there was stuff for people to read and they felt like they were getting their questions answered. Um, And in the course of that I started to write a little bit more about being female in engineering and some of the issues around diversity uh, in tech. After Quora, I went to Pinterest, uh, which was also a very small startup at the time that I joined. Uh, when I signed my offer, there were eight people there. Wow. I was very excited to join a small company again. Um, what's a little bit funny is at the time that I left Quora, there were about 30 people and I felt like it was getting big and I was excited about joining a much smaller company. So I went to Pinterest. Again, as a software engineer, um, it quickly grew to surpass the 30 people that I thought was kind of a large size. Um, and... It was very fun to be on the engineering side building products, Um, but alongside that, I also started to get more vocal around issues of uh, women in engineering and diversity in tech more broadly. And In 2013, I wrote a Medium post, and it wasn't meant to be a thing, it was just me writing a post um, reflecting on some thoughts I had when I was at Grace Hopper, which is this annual conference for women in computing. I had been struck by this realization that uh, in the tech industry, which is so data-driven, we had no data at all on diversity. Uh, And Everything we do in tech is so instrumented. There are metrics for everything. Um, That's how we know we're doing the right thing or not. We A-B test things. We experiment. Uh, But when it came to diversity, we had no numbers. And so we had no idea what the baseline was or if any of the things that we were doing around diversity were actually effective. And uh, I wasn't the first person to talk about measuring diversity or have numbers and transparency, but I think I published my post at the right time and it caught, uh, and I set up alongside my Medium post a GitHub repository where I crowdsourced data on women in engineering. And there started to be a lot of people contributing their data. Uh, some people were contributing for their companies, which were very small, so they could just look around a room and count the number of female engineers and total engineers. And some people went on to other companies about pages to count up people. Uh, I remember looking at Dropbox's About page where they listed all of their employees uh, and they had a panda on there. That's a joke. Uh, But when I was trying to do the checksum to figure out if I had counted correctly, I was counting uh, the number of women, the number of men, and then the total number just to make sure that I got it right. My numbers were off by one because of this panda. (laughs) I realized what was going on. Um, But we started to have more people, there started to be more people contributing these numbers and... uh, what I realized was that people actually did want to do something about diversity. They just didn't know what to do. And in this, uh, it was very obvious that they could just take this one step. They could count the number of people, contribute their numbers to this public database, and it would be helping towards solving the problem. And it was a very easy first step for people to do. Uh, and so I think that was just a that was just a good thing for people to be able to contribute to. And that started to snowball and there started to be more uh, discussion because there was that greater transparency. Um, And when the big companies started to play along as well. So in 2014, uh, Google was the first big company to release a holistic diversity data report where they were documenting not just women in engineering numbers, but also the, the non-tech numbers, and not just gender, but also race and leadership. And once Google had put out their numbers, kind of in that same vein, a lot of other big companies released their data. And once all that data was out there, this thing which had been an open secret in Silicon Valley for a long time became known to the rest of the world as well. And so it entered more of the national conversation. Um, even the White House was talking about it. And it became a really big topic of conversation when people realized that these companies are producing technology and products that everyone is using were so not representative in their workforces of the people that they were trying to serve.
0: So this is so fascinating. I mean, obviously, this this snowball effect, uh, and when you asked these questions at the right time, when people were ready to start addressing this, was there something in your life, in your work experience, that actually stimulated you to write about this? Obviously, you are a woman in engineering in the workforce in Silicon Valley, but were there examples of things that happened to you that made you really clearly aware of this challenge?
1: When I was in school, I knew that there weren't a lot of women in engineering and I always was aware that there was this gender imbalance, but back then I didn't think that there was anything to be changed. I just accepted it, that that was the way that things would be. When I started working, again, that same gender imbalance was there. Uh, When I was in a a full-time role, I realized how it actually played out in terms of like career prospects and it became much more um, of a thing that I was concerned about. And when I was starting to work and go, going to industry events and meeting people, I became very painfully aware of how differently women were treated. Um, and back in school, it wasn't nearly as obvious. We were all taking the same classes and we'd be all doing the same assignments. Um, but when I got to the workplace and people were getting different assignments and getting different opportunities, I started to become aware of why it really mattered for me. Um, And I had a number of instances um, out at different industry events, people who uh, would ask if my role was to photocopy things when I said that it worked at at some startup, Um, and people who would say things like, you're too pretty to code. Uh, And none of these things were that significant in of themselves, but added up. There was this whole tone that I didn't belong as an engineer. And so there were a lot of these personal incidents.
0: I'm going to play you an audio clip that was recorded 10 years ago in 2006. It's John Roos, who was a partner at the time at Wilson Sonsini, and then he went on to become the American ambassador to Japan. And he basically is saying something that I know I heard all the time, is that, no, 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 Silicon Valley is a meritocracy. You know, it, anyone who has a great idea can put their idea forward. And nobody's looking at any aspects of, uh, you know, their their race, their gender, uh So tell me what you think of this.
2: The first thing is that the Silicon Valley is more than any other place in the world built on merit. It is built on merit, and interestingly enough, and you may find this hard to believe, but it is built on diversity, and that is the strength the core strength of the valley, and now when I use the term Silicon Valley, you know, it also expands way beyond the Silicon Valley. I'll talk a little bit about that, but the Silicon Valley is obviously now worldwide. But the one thing I noticed, and whenever I represent clients in other industries, in other parts of the world that are non-tech related, non-life science related, not emerging growth related, I see a different dynamic out there. And a lot of times, you see structures in place that do not recognize merit. And in this industry, the beauty of it is you can take an idea from day one, from that first circle, and you can you know, work hard, dream big, and make it happen. And no one will prejudge you. No matter what age you are, no matter where you come from, uh, it's pretty incredible.
0: So what do you think about this? I know I was told this all the time when I entered the workforce. You know, how do, how do you reconcile when people in leadership positions say this with the types of experiences that you had?
1: I think Silicon Valley is aspirationally as John describes that aspirationally it is meritocratic and diverse. If you look at the actual data, that is not exactly the case. And so you would assume if Silicon Valley were truly meritocratic, that the people who are in leadership roles and succeeding and just generally represented would reflect the broader pools of talent that are in the economy. Uh, when you look at leadership in tech companies and is largely white and Asian male, then to reconcile that with a meritocracy, you would have to believe that white and Asian men are just better than everybody else at everything, or perhaps it's not actually a meritocracy. When you look at other numbers around engineering, for example, uh, it's pretty well known now that Silicon Valley companies don't have a lot of black and Latino or Latina engineers. And some companies will say that it's because there's a pipeline problem, that there aren't enough people who are graduating from these programs. But if you look at the graduation rates of Black and Latino and Latina students from computer science programs, they're more than twice the percentages that are represented in tech companies. So there are pretty big drop-offs there. uh, And it's very difficult to reconcile all these notions of meritocracy. And I think in the last few years, Silicon Valley has least come to recognize that we may not be as meritocratic as we would hope.
0: So are there some organizations that are doing this well? Are there some we can look at as role models and and learn something from?
1: That's a very good question. I think all companies have a long way to go on that front. Um, Within the tech industry, I think my former employer, Pinterest, was doing a pretty good job. We had a long way to go as well, but we are at least very honest about where we were and putting out our numbers and also committing to goals. So in the last few years, we started to see that just putting out numbers wasn't enough. Just having metrics doesn't mean that you're gonna make the metrics move in the right direction. And uh, what became very clear after all these companies started releasing their numbers and then the follow-up numbers was that in the absence of commitments, to action, having plans to change those metrics, nothing was actually going to happen. So I think Pinterest has done a good job on that front. Um, Slack is also pretty uh, well-respected in terms of what they're trying to do around diversity. Their CEO, Stuart Butterfield, who is a white man, um, has been very vocal in supporting issues um, around diversity around women's issues, also Black Lives Matter, and he's not afraid to be out there and use the platform that he has to try to uh, bring light to these issues um, and and be a strong voice and calling out people when they're saying things that don't make sense. Um, And I think it's really important to have leaders like that be willing to go on record about these issues and really create the space for um, their companies and other people in industry to feel comfortable talking about these things and trying to make change
0: we we know that this is the right thing to do for our community, but is it the right thing to do for these companies? You know, can you basically say, hey, listen, having a diverse workforce is actually better for business? I mean, I'm going to assume that there
1: are some great arguments for that as well. Yes, there's many decades of research, actually, that says that diversity makes teams stronger, uh, particularly in innovation. So diversity is not actually better for firms that don't care about innovation, but given that we are in Silicon Valley and we do pride ourselves and we have built all of our businesses around innovation, it is actually very important. So a lot of research that says that when you have uh, more diverse teams, and they've done this in controlled studies, when you introduce diversity, and it doesn't have to be gender or race, it could even be having Democrats or Republicans in a room. Those teams work harder, are more creative, and just tend to come up with more creative ideas. In fact, let me play
0: you a little clip from Judy Estrin. She is a serial entrepreneur, and her discussion in this CLIP is about um, cognitive diversity. And I think that's what you're bringing up So I'd love to get your thoughts on this.
3: Innovation is no longer about a person inventing in a garage. Um, The problems have become much more complicated than they uh, were. Um, I won't say all the easy problems have been solved, but a lot of the easy problems have been solved. And those exciting problems that face us today are more complex and involve teams. And um, wonderful things happen from small teams of people who are inspired and given grand challenges. But one thing that's very important about innovative teams is an element of diversity. And here I'm not talking about uh, gender. I'm not talking about race. I'm not talking about ethnic diversity. I'm talking about cognitive diversity. And so what you really want in your teams to maximize innovation is people who come at a problem from different perspectives. And that may come from different life experiences, from different disciplines of study. But that cognitive diversity in a team is something that is really, really important in terms of maximizing uh, innovation.
0: So what do you think about Judy's perspective?
1: I completely agree. Uh, So it is very important that diversity is not just measured on these external characteristics like race and gender and the reason why we do fixate so much on them right now is that those are the things that are easily measurable so we can at least look at our workforce demographics and say whether or not we have diversity there and if we can't even get diversity on those visible external markers it's unlikely that we're getting it anywhere else but ultimately those are just proxies for the sort of cognitive diversity experiential diversity that she's talking about in that clip which is what we want people who represent these different ideas and backgrounds and perspectives to be in the room, participating and, and sharing all of that. Um, and so, it, yes, it is very important that we have that broader form of diversity.
0: One of the things that we have to think about, though, is that let's say you, you do a great job of getting all the right people in the room, now you have to get them to actually work together in an effective way. One of the problems that I've seen is, and you mentioned it earlier, is you get a woman in the room, but there are expectations about the type of role she's playing and the types of things that she can do. I'm going to play you a short clip from Cindy Padnos, and she was a CEO of several companies. And she talks about, especially many years ago, being the only woman in the room and how people may have had all sorts of misexpectations expectations about what she was doing, what her roles were, and often would turn to the men in the room to ask really the the hard questions that she as a CEO should have been asking. So let's see what she says and also what you think about this.
3: There were times when people weren't quite sure what role I played in the company. And uh, a couple of meetings where, in particular with investors, they... um, the male uh, uh, VCs on the other side of the table were were clearly a little bit uncomfortable asking me some of the more um, CEO-oriented questions. But I had a team that was very aware of that. And so, in fact, in a funny way, if they turned to my VP of Engineering or my VP of Marketing, who were both men, and asked them a question they should have asked me, they would just turn to me and say, that's probably a better question for Cindy to address. Uh, And we got over those pretty quickly.
0: So this is an interesting issue. You know, once you get in the door, how do you get people to treat you like the leader you are?
1: So that's part of why now a lot of um, the discussion around diversity is not just diversity, but diversity and inclusion. It's not just about getting people into the room. It's also about building the inclusive environment that allows people from different backgrounds to be successful. And I would say it's not the burden of the person who comes from an underrepresented background to create that space for themselves. The company should be doing that for them and building the cultures that will allow people from different backgrounds to succeed.
0: So I understand that you're starting a new organization called Project Include with a bunch of other really interesting women. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what the goals are
1: and how you're going to meet that? Yeah, so Project Include is a group effort. There are eight of us women in tech representing lots of different experiences within the tech industry. And our goal was to pull together a comprehensive set of recommendations for diversity and inclusion for tech startups. So the things are a little bit more unique about that, that we want to make our recommendations comprehensive um, and inclusive. So not just a recommendation here or there around hiring and use a Rooney rule and maybe make your resumes uh, name- you know, anonymized, those are little tactics that you can sprinkle here and there, but we wanted to make comprehensive recommendations. So it's not just about trying to pull these like easy um, silver bullets. And we're focused specifically on tech startups um, where we think there's just so much room, there's so much opportunity to get things right from the beginning. It's much easier to change course early on and set the right culture than trying to steer a really massive ship later and try to change the culture of a company that's thousands of people. Um, And so we're very focused on solutions and uh, on the Project Include website we have a lot of these different recommendations listed out. And in order to put these uh, into practice, we're also running a couple of programs uh, affiliated with Project Include. One is called Startup Include and one is VC Include. And for Startup Include, we're asking that the companies in our cohort commit to uh, metrics that they're going to share with us as a, a third party. Uh, and they're going to try out some of these different recommendations that make sense for them and report back on their metrics after three months and after six months so we can see which things are actually working or not. So it's this uh, way of sharing, almost like in this open source model that's so popular for software, where as a community we're working together to figure out what works and what doesn't and share that collectively. And so for the companies in our cohort, they'll be giving us these metrics and we'll be able to aggregate them and then produce statistics around them to say, well, this is where the median is. Maybe this is like the 25th Quartile and 75th percentile, or different quartiles and percentiles, so people will understand what the benchmarks are for these different stats. Um, and so this is kind of a nice solution because it means that the companies that are participating don't have to disclose all of their data, but they're still contributing towards producing benchmarks for industry. And VC include is where um, the VC firms will recommend to their portfolio company, startups, to also collect and share this data with them um, and then with us as Project Include.
0: This is all really interesting looking at what the companies can do, but what can those groups that are underrepresented do to make themselves Um, more attractive, um, and just get in the door or to negotiate well for themselves. And one of the things we know is that women often don't ask for the things they want. Um, In fact, I'm going to play you a clip in a second from Stan Christensen, who teaches negotiation at Stanford. And he gives these wonderful examples about how men and women differ in just even the way they negotiate for themselves when they're actually being offered a job.
4: Quick comment about gender, and I've mentioned this to to some of you. It it turns out that men and women do approach job negotiations very differently, and there's some fun research on this. So uh, a large study was done of a a group of, I think it was business school students, and of that group, over 60% of the men that were uh, in this study asked for more compensation independently of what they were offered. So... You know, fifty thousand dollars. I want more. Sixty. I want more. Seventy. I want more. Eighty. I want more. I'm worth more than a hundred. If that's what you're offering me, it didn't matter. The men just wanted more. Okay. Conversely, women with same education background offered the same salaries. Less than ten percent of them asked for more. Women tend to feel, and again, these are generalizations. women tend to feel, oh, I'm lucky to have a job. I don't want to stir any waves. You know, um, I want to get things started off on the right foot. The male attitude, I want more. I'm worth it. They have no idea how good I am. I'm going to be killing it for them. Um, and so there's a difference. And so that gives you a little bit of a sense, both if you're you know, hiring men or hiring women, or you're a man or a woman looking for a job, that we tend to have different approaches. Whether you're a man or a woman, what you want to be paid is what's fair. And that's an often very good strategy if you're seeing the salary level different than they are. If you guys see a different world, say, look, um, I kind of came in with higher expectations. Um, let me kind of walk you through how I got there.
1: I think it is very useful for people to know the sorts of biases that are at work. I think it's unfair to expect that the people from underrepresented groups should be the ones to try to make things better for themselves when the whole system is broken and biased against them. Specifically, when it comes to negotiation in response to that clip, um, I think there was follow-up research that showed that when women negotiated, they were perceived more negatively for having done so and they were judged for being pushy or just not conforming to expectations around what women should be like in the workplace. And so oftentimes the reason why women weren't negotiating was because they could sense that they were, there would be repercussions for negotiating. And so just telling the women to negotiate is not the right solution. And there are actually ways that companies can address this. So instead of having negotiation, companies can also just make offers that aren't negotiable. Uh, and this is something that Reddit did under Ellen Powell, where they introduced this policy: they're not negotiating. And you think about it, it's fair that way because uh, a company is willing to pay us up to a certain amount of money, uh, a certain amount of compensation for a candidate. And when there's negotiation involved, what they're trying to do is get away with paying the minimum that they can, just to see what the candidate will push it up to. What would be fair is just to say we're willing, we're valuing you as a candidate at this level. contribution and we think you're worth this much and then just pay that to everybody. It's interesting because
0: obviously, as you're saying, women feel that if they negotiate aggressively, it's going to actually backfire. I read an article recently that even diversity training backfires. And so there are things that seem like on the surface they should work, you know, like telling women to be a little bit more aggressive or training people on how to deal with folks who come from very different backgrounds. But we're much more complex than that can you help us understand this this really murky situation
1: yeah so i think the more we dig into this the more we realize that there aren't simple solutions and things like let's just do unconscious bias training also don't work um without understanding the context and the nuance of all these um different initiatives and, and the environment when it comes to diversity training, um, yeah, there can be pushback from people who don't value it. So if it's not communicated why this sort of thing is important, then people can feel like they're just being forced to do something they don't want to do. Uh, so there has to be a very clear communication around the benefits of diversity and inclusion for the workplace, um, and what the benefits are to individuals as well. Uh, there are some people who may feel like things are being taken away from them. So there's some research that says that, um, I think white men will feel like you know, they're, um, they're getting pulled back when there are diversity efforts, which may actually be the right thing because if they've been given an unfair advantage in the past. Maybe we should be evening that out. Um, but I think a lot of this is a very careful communication and also measuring the sentiment around um, these initiatives and understanding if they're actually effective or not. So that kind of goes back to this idea of uh, applying the sorts of things that we do in the tech industry normally, such as data, such as measurement, to the way we're solving the diversity and inclusion problems as well. So we measure the data, we understand where we are and where we want to be. We also experiment and try different things and understand what's working or not, commit to these initiatives as business imperatives. These are all the sorts of things that we would do for building our tech products. And we just need to sort to apply that same sort of mentality to solving diversity and inclusion as well.
0: So I'm gonna ask you a personal question. Um, And this is a question I ask myself all the time. You know, I feel like I'm really sensitive to diversity. I really feel that this is an incredibly important thing. And yet sometimes I find myself falling into a trap where I've made assumptions about someone. And I really, oh my gosh, even if I'm so careful, you know, I can walk into a room and look at someone and make um, really... Um, misjudge the role they play, their ability, their background. Did, have you ever found that that happens to you?
1: I think it has happened. I tend to be very um, cognizant of the biases. Like I just keep thinking about it all the time. So I'll walk into a room, I might see I might see a woman, or I might see um, someone who's black or Latino or Latina, and think they're probably not an engineer just based on probabilities. But I'll keep gut check. I'll just keep checking myself. Like well. I wouldn't want someone to just walk into a room and assume that I'm not an engineer because there aren't as many female engineers. So I'm I'm always having this internal dialogue around that. Um, I think it is very natural for people to have these biases and um, to succumb to them. But I think what's important is that we're constantly trying to improve and understand um, the people around us and build that empathy. Uh, So one one of the things I I like to do, I I love Twitter as a platform. What I like to do is just go find people who are very different from me um, and represent these different perspectives and viewpoints and follow them and see what they're talking about and understand where they're coming from and learn more of their stories and how they think about things. And that just really helps me to keep growing my understanding of other people's perspectives and positions uh, and, and that whole world around me.
0: This is clearly a very complex problem and one that it's so wonderful that so many people are thinking about right now. The time is ripe for us to really make some important changes. Can you paint a picture of what the world should hopefully look like in 10 years if all of us have been successful of cracking this problem?
1: Yeah, so for the tech industry as well as all the other industries out there, we'll be successful when women are 50% of all roles, leadership and otherwise, when we have proportionate representation of all the different races and ethnicities at all levels as well um, in leadership in technical non-technical roles all across uh, the board so that's where we want to get to um, and i am hopeful because there is so much conversation around the topics right now and people are starting to make efforts towards that but it's also not something to take for granted that we'll get to that end state so We still have a lot of work to do, and um, hopefully we will get there in 10, 15, 20 years. So for those people who are really
0: excited about this topic and really want to follow it and get involved, where would you recommend that folks go to learn more about this?
1: So I have to plug Project Include, which uh, I'm a member of. So Project Include has a lot of resources on the website. That's projectinclude.org. We link to a lot of other resources and organizations that we think are doing great work. And we also try to share articles and resources on the Facebook and Twitter accounts of Project Include. Great. Well, thank you so much for helping to bring this really important
0: topic to all of us. It's something I know we all should be thinking about every day. And I know that uh, your insights you've shared have certainly had an impact on me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tina. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Our Innovation Lab story producer is Deanna badiz and the technical producer and editor is Eli Schell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Kahn, and our software developer is Davar Senkovic. Our designer is Daniel Stussi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Jort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu, including our acclaimed Entrepreneur thought leaders podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at E Corner.